This episode is sponsored by me, Andy Hill, the host of this show. If you're looking for someone to support you on your family, wealth, and happiness journey, I'm taking on a select number of coaching clients this year. To work with me one-on-one for your family finances, go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more. I would encourage people to try and find different realms of their life where people could care less about what they do for work. And it allows them to remind yourself that you exist on this planet to do more than just produce economic value. This show is dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill. And today we're talking about why your job is not your life. I've had a variety of jobs throughout mine, and most of them served a purpose. I earned money, and then I used that money to enjoy my life. It wasn't until I graduated college and I got a career that I felt like my job consumed my life. Outside of sleeping, it took up most of my time. And when I wasn't working in my career, I was thinking about my career and all the stuff I had to do next. My job quickly became my identity, and I didn't like it. And evidently, there are a lot more people out there just like me who don't want their job being their identity either. To dive into this topic of work taking over our identity and what to do about it, I've invited author Simone Stolzoff on the show today. Simone is an author, designer, and workplace expert from San Francisco. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, and many other publications. He's also the author of the new book, which I recently, recently enjoyed, The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work, which is out now. Welcome to the show, Simone. Andy, thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's dive right into the issue. There are a lot of people out there feeling like their job is not their calling or where they want to be. Are you finding that? Are you finding a lot of people out there that that are feeling like their job is their main identity and they don't like it? I think there are folks on both sides of the spectrum. Some folks that treat their work as more of a means to an end and others that treat work as more of an end in and of itself. But I think in the last few decades in particular, there has been growing pressure on our jobs to fulfill all of these different needs in our lives. But much as it's unrealistic to expect a spouse to be our everything, our, our financial partner, our best friend, our romantic partner, our comedian, our fitness instructor, it's also unrealistic to expect that burden on just our jobs themselves. And that's really the issue that I dive into in the book. How did our jobs become so central to our identities and what are some of the risks in doing so? Well, let's talk about that history. When did things change, I guess, in our society in the United States or just in general where we decided that this was more important than most other things? Yeah, so there's a few different ways to slice it. You know, if your last name is Baker or Miller, you might (laughs) not think that conflating identity in your job is anything new. Certainly, the Protestant work ethic and capitalism were sort of the two strands that entwined to form our country's DNA. But I argue in the book that in the last four or five decades in particular, work has become more central in Americans' lives. And there are a few different ways to explain. One is the way in which we tie our health care to our employment. Or if you're an immigrant, your ability to stay in this country is tied to your employment. You can look at economic factors about how, with stagnant wages, many Americans have had to work more hours just to earn the same loaf of bread. 
But the trend that I really harp on in the book is this cultural significance that we give to work here in the United States, especially in the last few decades with the decline of other institutions like organized religion or neighborhood and community groups that once provided a lot of identity and meaning in Americans' lives. Those needs for belonging and community and purpose remain, and many people have turned toward the place where they spend the majority of their time, which is the office. Yeah. Do do you find this to fall on either gender spectrum where you see men doing this more than women or how did your research fall? Yeah, the data shows that men tend to be more susceptible to this trend of of workism, you know, treating work akin to a religious identity. And it tends to be more common among people who are college educated, higher earners, frankly, people who are less likely to have other sources of meaning and identity in their life. But I think there's also a, a cultural aspect to it, where workism is sort of in the air that we breathe. Regardless of your own opinion, we live in a society and a a culture where productivity and self-worth are so tightly bound and that affects all of us. Now, I don't know if this is too broad of a brush to paint, but when we look at the United States in general, we gauge our progress and our improvement on GDP, which is our productivity, right? And I know other nations gauge their I guess, overall progress and success on, you know, a gauge of happiness. And obviously that that can be a little bit more difficult to quantify. Do you think maybe that has a little bit to do with our general interest as a society and continuing to work more and work more hours? Yeah, you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily problematic in and of itself to measure GDP or use it as a indicator of the health of our society. But, you know, even on a personal level, when we say someone is successful, we rarely mean they are happy or they're healthy. We mean they've made a lot of money. And so I think there are a few risks. The first is something that a lot of Americans have found out recently, which is that your job might not always be there. You know, even if you treat your job as your primary identity or social community, it can be taken away from you. As many people found out during the pandemic, if your job is your identity and you lose it because of a layoff or furloughed or just the nature of your work changes in some material way, it can send you for an existential loop. And there are two other risks. One, is the expectations that we play on our place on our jobs. You know, I often think about happiness as sort of the difference between our expectations and our reality. And when we have these sky-high expectations for our jobs, when we expect them to always be a dream or always be perfect, it can create a lot of room for disappointment. And then the third is something that's particularly relevant to your podcast and, and your listeners, which is if we give all of our best time and our best energy to our jobs, we can not we can neglect other aspects of who we are. You know, certainly we are all more than just workers. We are neighbors and citizens and siblings and friends and parents. And yet, if we are only giving our best time and attention to our jobs, all those other identities and sources of meaning can wither. You know, the the therapist Esther Perel has this great quote where she says, too many people bring the best of themselves to work and bring the leftovers home. And I remember when I first heard that, it, it hit me like a brick. It felt, it felt very resonant. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Especially as we are a comma show here, marriage, kids and money, as we talk about having multiple different identities and uh, all that goes along with that. You profiled some people in your book. And I'll just say, I, I really love how you wove in data as well as true stories of individuals to bring that data home. Can you talk about maybe somebody who's profiled in, in the book that talks about maybe somebody going a little too far with taking their job as their identity? Sure. Yeah. I'll tell the story of Kay He. So as you mentioned, you know, each chapter of the book is a profile of a different worker in a different industry. There is a Michelin star chef and there is a school librarian and there's a software engineer at Google who lives in a van in the Google parking lot. But maybe the most, you know, cliche story is that of a, a Wall Street banker named Kay. And Kay grew up lower middle class in New York City. Cambodian, American, first generation. And from an early age, he saw this sort of game that society had laid out for him, which was that if he could accrue enough status, then he could belong. Then he could feel like he was, you know, part of the in-group. And so in high school, he was the valedictorian. He went to an Ivy League college. In college, he said, okay, my options are I could be a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, or a banker. And it's the late 90s at the time. He chose banking. And then the goal became to make as much money as possible to, to rise up the ranks. He joined BlackRock, which is one of the largest asset management firms in the world. He worked his way up. He owned a New York City apartment before he turned 30. He was making seven figures. He was one of the youngest ever managing directors in BlackRock's history. And then it all came to a head at 35. He was getting ready to go to a friend of his, his wedding. And he looked in the mirror and he saw that a chunk of his hair had fallen out. And, you know, here's a man who had all of the markers for material success, what David Brooks would call all the resume virtues. And yet he was so stressed, his hair was literally falling out. And, you know, I, I won't ruin the end of the chapter. Basically, he makes a big change and he changes his life. But I think, you know, Kay's story represents an extreme of what happens when we just consider what the market values without considering what we ourselves value. You know, when he looked in the mirror, he really found that he was playing a game that he didn't want to win, or he was climbing a ladder that he didn't actually want to be on. And so I think, you know, it's a cautionary tale at one end of the spectrum. But I think there's also something to be said about the risks of the other end of the spectrum when we only consider what we value without considering what the market values. That can lead you to a position where, for example, you assume a lot of debt to go to graduate school to pursue a degree that might not lead to stable job prospects on the other side. Or you go all in to pursue your art, but you're so preoccupied with how you're going to pay rent or pay your bills that you can't actually focus on the art that you hope to create. And so I think the key here is we have to balance these two things. We hold you know, what the world values in one hand, what we value in the other hand, and hopefully find a job or a career at their intersection. I love that. Yeah, that's the uh, area that I'm continuing to try to strive with this show is to find that intersection so people can find their own version of wealth and happiness. Now, so Simone, for somebody to write a story about this topic, this might have impacted you personally as well. Is that true? Could you tell us a little bit about your story? 
Yeah, you know, the old cliche is that you write the book that you need to read. And that was certainly the case for me. I think I've spent my whole life trying to figure out what role work should play into it. And, you know, in college, I studied poetry and economics. You can already see this tension between the pursuit of art and the pursuit of commerce. In my 20s, I sort of played Goldilocks with careers. I worked in tech and I worked in advertising and I worked in, in journalism all the while trying to find a vocational soulmate. And it really came to a head when I was about 28 years old. And I was writing for you know a trendy magazine in New York City. And a recruiter reached out to me from this prestigious design agency called IDEO. And I was very flattered and you know, always take the, the phone call. But I sort of passively went through this interview process. And then I came to this fork in the road. And I had these two paths out in front of me, you know. On one hand, it's like, oh, the agony of deciding between two attractive job offers, you know. But on the other hand, it really didn't feel like I was choosing between two jobs. It felt like I was choosing between two versions of me. You know, there was sort of Simone the journalist on one direction and Simone the designer on the other. And it was it was tough. It, was, it felt like I was having to, to choose an identity. And so it made me start questioning, how did my work become so central to my identity? And I knew that I wasn't the only one. So that's what sort of kicked off this multi-year research project, which eventually became a book. From there, I think a lot of people have a financial decision to make. And maybe you had one as well, where I hate to say it, I think being a prestigious designer at IDEO might pay a little bit more than a life as a journalist. How does somebody or yourself, how do you deal with that financial change and all that goes with it? Yeah, it's a, it's a big question. you know, And I think it's important to be clear-headed about the primary purpose of work, which is to pay for our life. You know, I think certainly work can be much more than that. I've found best friends from work. I've been able to find purpose and, and meaning. But at the end of the day, the thing that I need work to do is to help support my, my life and the, the life of my family. It might sound kind of crass to frame it that way, especially because we're told jobs are meant to be callings and vocations and passions, not mere paychecks. But I actually think in thinking about work more transactionally, thinking about it as an economic contract can be incredibly freeing and thinking about what you're able to give, what you're getting in return, and whether that arrangement is something that works out well for you. So, you know, the title of the book is The Good Enough Job. And one thing I like about the, the term or the framework is that it's subjective. So you get to choose what good enough means to you. Perhaps for one person, it's a job that pays a certain wage. Maybe for someone else, it's a job that allows them to do a certain type of work or has a certain job title. Maybe for someone else, it's a job that gets off at a certain hour so they can pick up their kids from elementary school. But I hope that whenever people recognize what their definition of good enough is they'll be able to appreciate the way in which our jobs can support our lives rather than the other way around. Are you looking for someone to walk alongside you on your journey to family financial independence? Well, I would love to help you achieve your goals and help your family thrive. I work with couples, individuals, and families all around the U.S. via video chat and can assist in the following areas. Becoming debt-free, growing your net worth, crafting and sticking to your budget, reviewing coast fire plans, developing strategies to build generational wealth for your kids, 
and designing your future work optional lifestyle. Doesn't that sound nice? (laughs) If you're interested in working with me one-on-one, you can book a time with me by visiting marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching. I would love to help you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Visit marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more, or you can click the link in our show description. If you're looking to improve your financial situation, it helps when you're able to cut out unnecessary costs. Cell phone services are a necessity for sure, but we don't need to be overpaying for them, right? That's why I like Tello Mobile, a phone service worth talking about. We've been fully on board as a family with Tello for over two years now, and we are so happy that we made the switch. For us, the reception and data service is better than Verizon, and our costs were nearly cut in half. Tello runs on the T-Mobile network and it's wowing new customers like us with their rock bottom prices and stellar service. With over 10,000 reviews, Tello is rated as excellent on Trustpilot and this is quite rare in the wireless world. Nicole and I went for the unlimited data, minutes and texting plan for only 25 bucks per month each. Isn't that crazy? You heard that right. $25 is their most expensive plan, actually. And Tello is running a special offer for MKM listeners right now. Check out Tello today at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. And use the code MKM20 to get 20% off on your first month of service for any Tello plan above that $10 per month mark. Again, use MKM20 to get 20% off at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello, and you'll be supporting this show. Hurry up. The code is valid until April 19th, 2024. Marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. Yeah, I think it's important to, I guess, for people to experiment with that. And obviously experimenting when you're talking about your career and your financial situation can feel scary. But if you set yourself up with, I don't know, maybe some backup funds or like, you know, FU funds or just some money on the side to be like, all right, if, even if I completely mess this up, I've at least tried it. And I've experimented to see if this fits my lifestyle. It's also important to hear examples of other people who've done the same because the main example that a lot of us have is the 40 plus, 60 plus, 80 hour work week that a lot of people do. So for us to just see that, it's like, okay, well, that's the example of what you're supposed to do. But when we talk about these things, if we give more examples of what other people could do, maybe our minds expand a little bit further about what's possible for us personally, and that's what's possible for society. And I think a big part of your message is diversifying who you are as an individual. Can you talk a little bit more about why that's important for people, I guess, both for health reasons and happiness reasons? Yeah, you know, when we think about work-life balance, we tend to think about time and how much time we spend working. And I think my my take on it is about not just thinking about time, but thinking about the share of identity and meaning different aspects of your life bring to you. And so when I say diversify your identity, it's thinking much like an investor, you know, much like an investor benefits from diversifying the sources of stocks in their portfolio. We too benefit from diversifying the sources of of meaning and and identity in our lives. And, And the research backs us up, which says that people 
who have what they call greater self-complexity. People who have cultivated different facets of their being tend to be more resilient in the face of adversity. You know, this makes sense. If you're sort of rising and falling based on your professional accomplishments and your boss says something disparaging or you have a bad day at work, it can very easily spill over into all the other parts of who you are unless you have done the work to have multiple identities that you inhabit. It also shows that people who have greater interests and hobbies outside of work tend to be more innovative, tend to be more creative problem solvers. And so there's sort of the business case for diversifying your identity and the way that it allows us to be better workers. But I think there's also the, the moral case about the ways in which it can make us more well-rounded humans, make us better citizens of the world, better friends, better parents. And I think those are the the cases that I'm I'm trying to make. And so in terms of practical advice, you know, it might sound simplistic, but if you want to derive meaning outside of work, you have to do things other than work. You know, I think a lot of times people get into this sort of pattern where they go to work and maybe they come home and try and turn on Netflix and turn off their brain. And, you know, no offense to to Netflix, but our our identities grow in proportion with how much attention we give to them. You know, if you are an avid sports fan, you'll feel and derive more meaning from that identity with the more games you watch or articles you read about your favorite team. If you pride yourself on being a great friend, that will drive give you more meaning if you are able to spend more time building those relationships. And, you know, I think it can start small, just thinking about little ways in our days, in our weeks, in our lives that we can invest in some non-work versions of who we are. I love that term, diversification of your identity. It is truly uh, poetry and economics uh, mixing together there. So I think I see a lot of your background there. So, Simone, there's somebody listening right now and they saw the title of this podcast and they say, yeah, my job feels like it is my life. I have so much of my identity wrapped into my career and I'm feeling this message and I want to start having more of a diversification of my identity. What is one small step they can take following this interview? Yeah, I think one thing that I've learned again and again is that our identities tend to be socially reinforced. You know, they're reinforced by the communities and and the people around us. And I think one of the risks of, say, treating work as your, your primary social community is that it's just inhabiting one version of yourself. It's just one container with one set of values associated with it. So I'd encourage people to find different rooms or different communities in their life where people have other value systems. You know, I think that's one of the benefits of something like a church or a yoga studio or a community garden. You know, for me, I like to play pickup basketball. And one of the values of playing pickup is that no one cares about what I do for work or how many books I've sold that week or how many words I've written. They care that I'm a a good passer and that I, I box out when I rebound, you know. And so I would encourage people to try and find different realms of their life where people could care less about what they do for work. And it allows them to to remind yourself that you exist on this planet to do more than just produce economic value. I love that. And it all starts with taking a risk. I think sometimes we get uh, stuck in our rut and we say, oh, you know, I haven't played basketball since I was in high school. But you know what? Hey, you got to start somewhere. You got to find the group and then try to experiment with things because it quite 
quite literally change your life. So Simone, thank you so much for your time today. Tell people about your new book and where they can get it. Yeah, so it's called The Good Enough Job. You can learn more at thegoodenoughjob.com and you can find my socials and everything else there. Andy, thank you so much for having me on the show. Absolutely. Yeah. And everybody, if you uh, want to read, you can get the book. If you want Audible, you can hear Simone. I read it to you as well. That's what I was doing over the past month, running and doing some yard work. So Simone, yeah, I thank you again for If you're for not sick of my voice already. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, man. Thank you. Take it easy. What a refreshing conversation. Honestly, after reading the book and interviewing Simone, I feel less alone in my thoughts on this subject. Here are my top three takeaways from my conversation with Simone Stolzoff. Number one, recognize the problem. Before we can start to reclaim our life from our work, we need to first recognize that it's actually an issue. We exist on this planet to do more than provide economic value. That quote from Simone really stuck with me. Once we realize that we are more than our work, we can start to make changes. Number two, take time for reflection. Do you ever find yourself with a moment of free time thinking about what you could do and then reflexively you end up doing more work? (laughs) I have. And if you're listening to this, maybe you have too. It's probably because you and I haven't thought enough about what else we want our lives to look like outside of work. Do we want to be a better spouse? Do we want to be better parents? Do we want to be more thoughtful friends? Maybe find more time for our aging parents? a volunteer in our community, an author, an athlete, a musician. I just named a bunch of stuff (laughs) that I might want to be outside of work, but it's time for you to do the same. Take 10 minutes to think about who you want to be outside of work. Write down some ideas and get inspired. Number three, diversify who you are. It's time to take some action. As Simone suggested, start leaning into activities and interests that don't require you to prove your economic worth or value. He used the example of pickup basketball for himself. He's creating community. He's taking care of his health. He's making friends and no one on the court really cares about his work or how much economic value he's providing. Decide what step you could take to diversify who you are outside of work today and pursue it to lead by example right after this episode is finished i'm going to jump back into my piano lessons because who i want to be outside of my work is a musician i think that'd be really cool to be a musician so i'm going to pursue that and those are my top three takeaways everybody i would love to hear from you on what yours were please hit me up on social media at marriage kids and money on instagram and facebook and at andy hill mkm on linkedin And let's keep the conversation going. As a quick reminder, this show is for entertainment purposes only, my friends. Be sure to seek out a professional for your specific situation. A big thanks to Dan Tabbitt and his crew for editing our show today, and to Mandy Burt for her stellar writing on our blog, and to Weird Digital Marketing for their social media and podcast support. This content is not possible without these folks, so I am very grateful for all that they do. Thank you all so much. Hey, if you want to create some more connections with like-minded people who are on a mission to improve their family's finances... Well, you should join us in our Thriving Families Facebook group. This is a free Facebook group focused on helping young families thrive. Each week, we ask our members to share some family financial wins they've had. And recently, 
group member Jordan shared this great news with us. He said, my wife just took a negative event, work not renewing her contract, to a positive experience, getting a 20% pay increase while working less hours at a job half the distance away. Proud of her. Jordan, that is awesome. Congratulations on this family win. More money. Let's count this up. More money, fewer hours, and a shorter commute. That's pretty much the the winning combination right there, in my opinion. Just imagine what your wife could do with diversifying who she is as a person outside of work with this change, right? More time to take care of her health, more time for relaxation, And maybe more time for her marriage as well, right, Jordan? (laughs) Congratulations to you and your wife. This is a big win. Can I get a round of applause for our friend Jordan for sharing with us? All right, Jordan. Way to go, man. Way to go. If you're looking to make some connections with like-minded people and get inspired by their wins, please check out our free Thriving Families Facebook community. You could go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash community. That is marriagekidsandmoney.com slash community. It's a quick way to get there. And I hope to see you there. In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from Stephen Covey. Most of us spend too much time on what is urgent and not enough time on what is important. Let's decide on what's important in our lives and make it a priority. Carpe diem. 